It is so good to be in God's house. This is a bit different, isn't it? This is going to take a bit of getting looks used to. No matter where I stand, somebody's looking at my bum. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Take a bit of getting used to. Um, I'd like to share with you um, a, a word tonight that I've been wanting to share uh, since we started here at Glasgow. But I've never really felt as though God has given the green light to share that until tonight. This is a word that I believe God would seek to minister to us tonight. A number of years ago, Susan and I experienced a teaching and a revelation from God that completely shook our spiritual world and transformed our whole thinking and our whole understanding of God. Now, we have been brought up, both of us, in Christian households. We have attended church all of our lives since babes. And at this point, I had finished Bible college. We'd been in ministry for some time and encountered a word and some teaching that I'd never heard before in my life and that brought complete change and transformation. I don't know if you've been in those moments where you look back in your life and you can see a couple of milestone moments when God spoke and brought a revelation that just changed everything. Have you ever had those moments? There's been two significant milestone moments in my life in which God brought a revelation. You know those kind of moments in which it's almost like the light gets turned on and you never realize that you were sitting in the dark up until that point and just suddenly you see this whole new dimension of God. There's two significant moments like those in my life. One of them was actually a minister in training conference that Kevin had organized in Liverpool for all the ministers in training in Elam for Scotland and the north of England. And in that moment... I received a revelation of the father heart of God that just broke me into pieces and then sought to put me back together again. And the second of those moments was in 2009 when we encountered this word and this teaching that I'd like to share with you tonight. Hope that's okay. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? We're going to look at quite a bit of scripture tonight, but don't worry, it'll all hopefully come together in the end, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 7. It says, now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who'd put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, that is behold, that is reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now tonight, right at the very beginning of our Easter celebrations, we take a step back, as it were, on the Easter story and look at the big picture. And look at the big picture of what actually happened, what actually took place on that first Easter. And what happened on that first Easter is is described within these verses. And when we read through these verses, they sound quite complicated. This ministry and that ministry, it sounds quite complicated and it sounds quite bizarre and, and difficult. In this passage, there are two ministries that are described. The ministry, one ministry that is described as bringing death and condemnation. And one ministry that's described as bringing righteousness. One ministry that is described as coming with a glory that faded and passed away. Another ministry that is described as coming with a glory that never fades 
and never passes away, but always remains. One ministry that is described as being engraved on stone tablets. The other ministry that is described as being rooted in the ministry and the experience of the Holy Spirit. What has been described here is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And in its descriptions, we find something quite helpful. Because the old covenant was established through Moses. And the story goes that Moses came down the mountain with these stone tablets with the commandments engraved upon it, which was the deeds of the covenant. And the fact that it's described as being engraved on stone tablets points to the fact that this was an external experience. From time to time, he would go into the tent of meeting and the cloud of glory would come down. And when he came out, his face would so radiate with the Shekinah glory that he had to put a veil over his face. Not because people weren't allowed to see the glory, but because they, he didn't want them to see the glory fading away. Which points to the fact, both the tablets and the fading glory, that this ministry was an external ministry. They had to behold these tablets. They had to read and understand what was written on these tablets. There was an experience of God that was looking on to someone else that, that came and it went and it came and it went and it was periodic and it was sporadic. It was external. Whereas the ministry of the new covenant is entirely different. It is rooted in an experience and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is internal, not external. And we read words like beholding and contemplating and reflecting and being transformed, which shows that this is an experience that is to be had, an experience that brings incredible lasting change and transformation. Because such is the glory of the new covenant. It's all about glory. It's all about the experience of the manifest presence of God. And so tonight we begin to look at the new covenant. Now you might be thinking, oh help. Because how can you explore the new covenant in one night? Don't worry, I'll get you home before sunrise. <laughs> but actually, the new covenant is like a diamond. That every time you look at it, there's a new angle. There's a new dimension. There's a new aspect. There's a new aspect of beauty. There's a new aspect of wonder to behold. So permit me just for a little bit tonight, just to give a bit of an introduction in a very foundational way to the deeds of the new covenant. We begin by defining the word covenant. And the word covenant means beareth. In the dictionary, it is described as an agreement or a contract and we all know what it's like to live with agreements and contracts. We have financial agreements. We have rental agreements. We have employment contracts. We have financial and insurance contracts. I don't think there is one of us that doesn't exist in some form of agreement or contract. We sign them all the time, don't we? But in actual fact, when we come to the Hebrew word that is used, which is the word bereth, as I mentioned, it actually brings a deeper dimension because the word means to bind. And so actually covenant in the Old Testament is carrying this idea of a binding agreement. That which binds two parties together. As long as you do this, I'll do that. And as long as you do that, I'll do this. That's the deeds of a covenant. That's a binding agreement between two parties. Two parties are united together as one within the conditions of this covenant. And when we look in the scripture, we see that examples of people setting covenants. And in the Old Testament, when covenants were established, there were four clear conditions that had to be followed for the establishment of a covenant. It began with a statement of terms being agreed by both parties. As we've just said, as long as you do this, I'll do that. As long as you do that, I'll do that. But then there also came an oath or a vow by both parties to adhere to that covenant, an agreement to hold to those conditions, normally with God serving as the witness. Thirdly, there was a curse invoked if either party broke the covenant. There was a penalty. There was a consequence to the covenant or the contract being broken. And fourthly, the covenant was ratified by an external act. There was a sign that sealed the deal, an external sign. Let me give you an example of a covenant. Come back in your Bible to Genesis 
chapter 31. Genesis 31 and verse 44. This is the moment when Jacob gets ready to leave Laban and they establish a covenant. And Laban says, come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegersa Hadutha and Jacob called it Galiad. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. This is why it's called Galiad. It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness and will judge between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is the heap and here is the pillar I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I'll not go past this heap to your side to harm you and you'll not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. So here in this moment, Laban establishes a covenant with Jacob and we see the conditions of the covenant here. The terms are agreed by both parties. The terms that are set out are, you will not take any other women to be your wives except my daughters. And you will not mistreat my daughters in any way. I'm going to set up a pillar. You won't come past the pillar to my side to harm me. I'm not going to come past your pillar or my pillar to your side to harm you. That's the terms that are set out. They both agree and make a promise to those terms. They swear an oath on the vow, or Jacob swears an oath on the fear of his father Isaac. And then they promise, or there is the curse invoked if either break the covenant agreement. May God judge between us. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Nahor. May there be judgment from God if either of us breaks this. And then there's the external sign ratifying the covenant. You could say the stone heaps were the external sign, but actually it was the sacrifice that was offered where they brought God into that covenant agreement and they ate a meal together. So we see the conditions of the covenant. Now, in our day and age, we don't tend to make covenants like that. Probably the closest we've got is marriage. Because scripture calls marriage a covenant. And you can see the same conditions. Two parties come together and they set out the terms of agreement. Promise to love you, to honor you, to serve you all the days of my life. I promise to be faithful to you for as long as I shall live. There is a set of agreements, a set of terms set out. There is vows and oaths that are made to one another. And there's an external sign ratifying the covenant. The wearing of a ring that shows to all the world that that individual exists in a covenant relationship with another and reminds the individual that they exist in a covenant relationship with another human being. Now, there's not necessarily a curse invoked if the covenant is broken. However, gentlemen, let it be clear, if you break that covenant, the curse is probably the father-in-law coming looking for you. But we see these covenant agreements. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God regularly makes covenants with his people. That's what makes him so amazing. He makes covenants. There's multiple examples. Let me give you one. Slip back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 8. The first example of one is with God and Noah. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that come out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God says, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. 
Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on earth. So I think it's clear from the language, God is establishing a covenant here. And he sets out the terms, never again will I flood the earth and wipe out all living creatures. He makes a promise. He says, this is the covenant, an everlasting covenant between all people groups and all generations. Never again will this happen. There is the external sign that seals the deal. He puts a rainbow in the sky and says, every time the rainbow appears, it will remind me of the covenant I've made with you and will show you that you are in a covenant situation with me. And God has held that covenant because never since the time of Noah has there been a flood that has wiped out the face of the earth because he's a covenant-keeping God. Now, when we see this, we see the same conditions of the covenant, but we see something is different. God sets out the terms. God makes the promise to keep it. God brings the external sign. But there's no curse invoked if it's broken because, well, God's involved He doesn't break his promises. He does what he says he will do. He is faithful to himself. He watches over his word, ready to perform it. If he says it, he's going to do it. He can't lie. He can't break his promise or his word. But even if he did, which he won't, but even if he did, who could ever enforce a penalty on God? He's the most supreme being. He's the power that knit the whole universe together. Nobody could enforce a penalty or a restriction or an injudge or a judgment upon the greatest power that exists in our existence. You see, in this situation, God is the supreme being and he's entering into a covenant with man. This is not equal footing. So God sets out the conditions. God makes the promise. God brings the external sign. And we see time and time again through scripture, God sets up these covenants and he promises to act normally to man's benefit and man's um, blessing and favor. However, we see that begin to change. The next example of a covenant is found if you slip over again to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 and verse five. This is Abram now. It says, God took him outside and said to him, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Slip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt, or the Wadi, or the Wadi, I don't know, the Wadi Wadi, of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Cam- Amorites, the Kenites, the Gergesites, and Jebusites. <laughs> Got to say that right. The last time I preached, I said it the wrong way, apparently. And I got a text message from my mother that had watched the live stream and said, I don't think that's how you pronounce it, son. Anyway, God speaks to Abraham and he sets up a covenant with him. He sets out the terms. Look up at the stars. As many as the stars are, as many as your descendants are going to be. And he says, I'm going to cause you to dispossess land and dispossess nations. He sets up this covenant. He makes a promise to keep the covenant. Abraham says, how do I know that this is going to be? And God makes a promise. And then he gives an external sign. He says, get some animals Abraham takes the animals, he cuts them in half, and he lays them opposite one another. Now, in Old Testament times, when people were entering into a covenant, this was a practice that they did. Where they took the animal, cut it in two, animals cut it in two, laid the parts opposite one another, and the two parties entering into an agreement would walk through those together. 
And the idea was that they were coming together in agreement as they passed through this, these pieces. But also the idea was that if either of them broke the covenant, it was to happen to them as it happened to these animals. Now in this moment, Abram cuts these bits in half and lays them opposite one another. And by the way, that's where we get the term cutting a contract, cutting a deal, cutting an agreement or a covenant. It's from this cutting animals in half. And he sets them opposite one another and as night falls, there is this spiritual metaphor that takes place before Abram where this blazing fire pot comes down and passes through them. This is God and God is walking through these pieces. This is the external sign. Now again, what you'll notice is that God sets out the terms. God makes the promise and it's only God that walks through those pieces because he's not asking Abraham to do anything. He's just promising what he's going to do. However, that changes. If you slip over the page to Genesis 17 and to verse 3, it says, Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I have will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So God visits Abram again and he reinforces the same covenant, the same terms. You're going to have many descendants. You're going to dispossess nations. You're going to spread out and take the land. And he goes a little bit further and he says, you know what? I'm going to be your God and you and your descendants, you're going to be my people. So now what he's asking is something of Abram. And the ask is, I'm going to be your God and you need to be my people. You need to take me as your God. And therefore, here's the sign that we exist in a covenant together. He's the external sign. Every male is to be circumcised the covenant that was cut in the flesh. And you'll notice almost every time that there's the cutting of a covenant, there is a shedding of blood in some way. So God sets out the terms, he makes the promise, and then he sets out this external sign to ratify the deal that Abram and his descendants are going to be his people and he's going to be their God. Now this covenant promise that is set up here is so profound and so incredibly powerful. This promise to possess the land, to have many descendants, to experience the reality of God. And we know it's profound because it's reinforced. It's reinforced with Abraham. It's reinforced with Isaac. It's reinforced with Jacob. In fact, you could almost say that the story of the Old Testament is the story of God working out this covenant. It's so powerful, in fact, that it was this covenant was what saw Jacob and his sons transition from Canaan to Egypt in the midst of a famine. They moved from a place of famine and barrenness to a place of sustenance and supply. Why? Because God's covenant with them was that they wouldn't be cut off from the face of the earth, but instead they would have many descendants and dispossessed nations. So actually this transitioning from Canaan to Egypt was God working out his covenant. It's him keeping his end of the deal. You're not going to be cut off. This famine's not going to take you out because my covenant is that you're going to increase in descendants. So he positioned them. He was keeping his end of the deal. The problem was that they didn't keep theirs. Scripture tells us in Ezekiel that after many years in the land, the Israelite people began to adopt the Egyptian gods. And they began to follow after other gods and they began to worship false idols. The deal was, I'm going to increase you. I'm going to cause you to dispossess nations. I'm going to reveal my reality to you. But I need to be your God and you need to be my people. And when they began to take other gods, well, they broke their end of the covenant. So God's hand was lifted. And for centuries, they found themselves in slavery. And after a period of time, they began to cry out to God. And there's this amazing phrase in Exodus 2 and verse 24 but it says that the cry from the Israelite people reached God and it says this, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, 
and with Jacob. They broke their covenant and they turned to other gods. And then when they turned to him and cried out to him, he remembered his covenant and he stepped in. And the story of the Exodus is the story of God reestablishing the covenant conditions with us people. On the slopes of Mount Sinai, God reestablishes the covenant. Let's look at it. Exodus 19. Verse 4. God speaks to them and says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded them to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. God reinforces his covenant. Same things are coming out. You're going to increase, you're going to have many descendants. He promises that out of all the nations, they're going to be a blessing. He takes a step further and says, actually from you, I'm going to cause you to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. He's talking about his abiding reality to be with them. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the promise. This is the deal I'm setting for you. However, here's what I'm asking of you. The conditions that I set out for you are that you follow the 10 commandments and the 606 bylaws. So I'll keep my end of the deal if you keep your end of the deal. And here's your end. Ten commandments. 606 bylaws. If you obey me fully, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll bless you. Descendants will, will, will be numerous. You'll inhabit the land, dispossessed nations. And in Exodus 24, it says in verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said. Then in verse seven, it says, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. So Moses comes to the people and he says, okay, here's what God has said. He says, he's gonna be our God. He's gonna cause us to dispossess land and, and have many descendants. But he says, this is what he's asking of us. The 10 commandments, the 606 bylaws. And as he tells them, they all respond by saying, do you know what, we're in. We're up for that. We agree to that. So can you see the covenant being established here? Set of terms are set out. There's a promise, a vow from the people. All we need is the external sign to ratify the whole thing. And we see it in verse 8. Moses then took blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So we see the external sign ratifying the covenant. So the conditions are set out. All they need to do is obey the law. However, the problem is that it didn't take them very long to realize that the law was impossible to obey. It was impossible for them to keep their end of the bargain. In fact, the sacrificial system was introduced to accommodate their shortfall, their failings. Time and time again, when they broke the end of their end of the deal, they had to bring a sacrifice as a penalty for breaking the contract, for breaking the covenant. And soon they came to the realization that they couldn't do the right thing in their end of the covenant. They couldn't do the right thing. In fact, they came to the conclusion that it was impossible for them to gain a right standing. They came to the place that all of us have to come to, that it's impossible to gain righteousness in our own strength and in our own merit. And that's why God introduced the law. It sounds a bit harsh, but the scripture says he introduced the law to point us to Jesus. He introduced the law to show us we can't be our own God. Which is why we get into this mess in the first place. We can't gain righteousness in our own efforts and in our own standing. It's impossible. So God introduced a better way. He introduced a brand new covenant. And that brand new covenant first begins, the establishment of that big covenant begins in a slightly unusual place. Turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah 42. 
Isaiah 42 might not be a passage that you regularly fall on or read or land on, but it is one of the most stunningly beautiful passages of Scripture. And I trust that as this lands in your heart and soul, it will become one of your favorites. Let's read it from verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those that sit in darkness. This scripture shows a very unique moment. It shows us a dialogue in heaven. And in this dialogue, God is speaking. Because it tells us that. This is what God the Lord says. So God is speaking. And he begins, first of all, to speak about his servant. Then he begins to speak to the servant. He begins to speak about a servant whom he upholds. A servant whom he has chosen. A servant in whom he delights. A servant upon whom he releases his spirit. A servant who will bring justice to the nations. A servant who will serve with a gentle and gracious ministry. This servant is Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who was baptized in the river Jordan. And as he came out of the waters, the heavens opened and a voice was heard saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son in whom is my delight. And then the spirit descended upon him. The spirit was released upon him. These references of a smoldering wick not being snuffed out and a bruised reed not being broken, these are messianic terms. But we see it furthermore when we read what the servant will do. He's going to open eyes that are blind. He's going to set captives free. He's going to release people from dungeons of darkness. These are the words that Jesus read and from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. Yes, he was reading Isaiah 60, but these words are mentioned here as well. This is what Jesus came to do. He says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, this is what I've been sent to do. This is my task. This is my mandate. This is my work. And therefore, what we read in Isaiah 42 is a moment in which the Father speaks to the Son. And what makes this so profound is that there are many times throughout Jesus' ministry in which we know he goes aside with the Father and spends time with him, but we're never told what is said. We don't get insight into the discussion and the dialogue. But in Isaiah 42, we do. And as the Father speaks to the Son, here's what he says. He says, I have called you in righteousness. He says to the Son, Son, I've got a calling for you. I've got a mission for you. I've got a mandate for you. I've got a task. I've got a job. I've got a work for you to do. And of course, this job we understand is to enter humanity and rescue and redeem the human race. It's to open eyes that are blind and set the captives free and release us from dungeons of darkness to release light to the world, to be the very light of the world. And God says to him, I've got a task, I've got a mission for you to do. I want you to go to the world and redeem humanity. And constantly throughout his ministry, Jesus affirms this moment. Because constantly he's saying, I've come not to do my will, but the will of the one that sent me. I'm not doing my job, I'm not doing my work, I'm not doing what I want. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man has come and I am here to do, my will, uh, to do his will, not my will. I've been sent to do the work of the Father. He constantly reaffirms this. The Father speaks to him and says, I've got a job, I've got a task, I've got a mission. And the Son throughout his ministry is affirming what I'm doing, what you see me doing is the work of the Father. It's what he's asked me to do. It's what he's sent me to do. 
So God speaks to the son. The father speaks to the son and says, I've got a job. I've got a calling for you. I want you to go and rescue humanity. And then he says this, I will take hold of your hand. Now the language that's used here in the Hebrew is to describe this moment of unity and union. Actually, it's almost like a father taking hold of a child's hand to lead them. And so the father says to the son, I want you to go and I want you to redeem and rescue humanity. I've got a job and a task for you, but don't worry, I'll be with you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you every single step of the way as a father leads a child. So I'm going to lead you. And as Jesus ministers, he is constantly affirming his dependence on the father, isn't he? He says, I can do nothing apart from the father. John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. I always do what he wants. I do his will. He's with me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because he's with me. He's holding my hand. He's guiding me. He's leading me. He's not left me alone. So the Father says, I've got a job. I've got a task. But don't worry, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take your hand. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you every single step of the way. And then he says this to them. He says, I will keep you. The word keep in the Hebrew means preserve. He says, I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to protect you. I'm sending you into the fallen world. I'm going to ask you to be born in the flesh. I'm going to ask you to take on human flesh. I'm going to ask you to go among sinful humanity. But don't worry. Not only will I be with you, but I'm going to keep you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. No one can take your life from you. And Jesus affirms that too, doesn't he? He speaks of the son of man and he says no one can take his life from him but he lays it down voluntary of his own accord. He has the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again because he says this is the command I received from my father. This is the moment he receives the command. I want you to go. I've got a job. I want you to go to the world. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to preserve you. Not one hair on your head will be harmed. Nobody can take your life from you. And this is why Jesus walks into volatile situations. This is why he walks into situations, drops truth bombs, stirs everything up, and then just walks back out again. This is why when they pick up the stones to begin to stone him, he just moses on through the crowd and keeps on going because the Father has promised him, I will keep you. No one can take your life from you and then he says this I will make you a covenant for the people I've got a job for you to do I want you to go I want you to redeem humanity I'm going to be with you I'm going to keep you I'm going to preserve you and I'm going to establish a whole new covenant in you I'm going to make you in you and through you I'm going to establish a brand new covenant it's interesting that he talks about covenant because there's covenant language all over this. And in actual fact, if you look at what's been said here, there is terms and conditions. Here's what I'm going to do and here's what you have to do. So actually what we see in this dialogue is the father establishing a covenant with the son. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down. I want you to redeem and rescue humanity. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you a brand new covenant. But here's the thing. This is not a moment like God making a covenant with man because God is the supreme being and man is not. He's inferior. But in this moment, this is the father and the son, which means these two people are on equal footing. This is God and God. So as the father sets out conditions, so does the son. This is where it gets amazing. Turn with me to John chapter 17. In closing. John chapter 17 is described as the high priestly prayer. It's the moment we believe when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. And it's interesting that if in the moment when we read the Father speaking to the Son, we see the conditions that the Father is setting out the covenant, that therefore in the moment when we see the son speaking to the father, we see similar conditions. Now, there's loads of times in which the son speaks to the father, but we don't know really what is said. But here is a moment 
in which Jesus speaks to the Son and we, it's Jesus speaks to the Father and we read what has taken place. And Jesus makes three requests. The first request is found in verse one. After Jesus said this, he looked up towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays to the Father and just as he's about to endure the cross, he says, Father, I have finished the work you sent me to do. I have done what you have asked. I have upheld my end of the covenant, of the agreement. Now here's my request. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. It's almost as though in this moment, Jesus is reiterating, if you could take this poetic license, the conversation that happened between the father and the son, where the father says, I want you to go to earth and I want you to redeem humanity. And the son says, okay, I'll go. But my request is that you return me to my standing and positioning in heaven. I'll go down, I'll redeem humanity, I will bear sin, I will pay the price, I will be the covenant for the people. But here's what I ask, return me to my glory and standing in heaven. So now in this moment, as he completes his task, the cross is right in front of him. He says, Father, I've finished the work you've sent me to do. I've upheld my end of the covenant. I've done what you've told me to. So now I ask that you would return me, that you glorify me with the glory I had before the foundations of the world and therefore as he took sin upon himself and he was nailed to the cross and he paid the price of sin and he breathed his last breath he said it is finished the power of sin is finished the sting of death is finished the power of the devil is finished the power of hell is finished but could it be that Jesus also said the work you have sent me to do is finished I've upheld my end of the bargain I've been obedient obedient to death even death on a cross therefore in Philippians, the most important word is therefore. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, having upheld his end of the covenant, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says, I've finished my end of what you asked me to do. Now I'm asking that you would glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. As Jesus hung on the cross and he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. Three days later, the ground began to shake. Angels start turning up. The Holy Spirit checks into the tomb. Jesus Christ is risen. He rises from the dead, ascends through the heavenlies, is seated at the right hand of majesty, crowned with all glory and honor and power and splendor and given the greatest name and the greatest power that ever could be because in that moment, God up held his end of the covenant agreement and you're sitting there and I'm standing here today and we know not just that he died and not just that he rose again but actually he is the name above every name he is all powerful he is the king of kings and the lord of lords because it's the deeds of the covenant therefore for the joy that was before him he endured the cross he endured the cross he was obedient because he knew the glory was coming, because it's the deeds of the covenant. The second request that Jesus makes is in verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. The request to return to glory would be enough. But how amazing is it that Jesus doesn't finish there? This makes us fall in love with him all over again. Because in this moment, he prays for us. And the condition is about us. 
He says, Father, I'm going to go and I'm going to do the job. I'm going to do what you've asked me. But I ask that those that believe in me, that you protect them. That you protect them with the name that you've given me. I ask that those that come to faith exist under your protection. And the way that you took my hand and then the way that you kept me, I ask that you keep them. And this is why, church, this is why we can say we're held in the palm of his hand and nothing can take us away. This is why we know that even though we walk through the fire and even though we pass through the water, the waves won't sweep over us and the, the fire won't set us ablaze because this is the deed of the covenant. This is why we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us because the deeds of the covenant is that it doesn't matter where we are and doesn't matter what's going on, we exist under the protection of the heavenly father. And that means we can go anywhere in this world. We can go into the deepest, darkest pit. We can go into the most violent of situations. We can go into the most threatening of situations. Not that I'm encouraging us to do that, but we can walk into any situation and any circumstance and know not one day in our life will be shortened before the Father tells us it will because we exist under the protection of God. We can be anywhere. We can be in any situation, but the deeds of the covenant are that wherever we are and whatever we do, we exist under the protection of the name the Father gave to the Son. And what is that name? It's the name above every name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's the name in which the sovereignty and the authority of God is released. We're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us because it's the deeds of the new covenant. His third and final request is in verse 24. He says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. This is the only moment in scripture where we read Jesus saying, I want. Up until now, he said, it's not my will, it's his will. I'm not doing what I want, I'm doing what he wants. I'm not doing my work, I'm doing his work. But this is the one moment where Jesus says, this is what I want. Father, this is my will. This is my request. And my request is that those that believe in me, that those that have put their faith and trust in me, that they be where I am. Now, where is he? He's seated at the right hand of majesty. He's seated in glory. His request is that we have instant access to the presence of God. That's why we are a royal priesthood. It doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter where we are, we have instant access. It doesn't matter where in the world we are, it doesn't matter what situation it is, it doesn't matter what's going on round about us. We have instant access. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Father, this is what I want. I want those that read their Bible every morning to be where I am. I want those that spend an hour in prayer every morning to be where I am. I want those that have got all their spiritual ducks in a row, those that deal with the sin in their life and have got all the sin out, those that have been through extensive deliverance ministry, those that prophesy. No, he says, I want those that believe to have access to where I am. You see, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height nor depth, neither past nor present, neither angel nor demon, neither life nor death, no power in the sky above and the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. But here's the deal, God is love, it's who he is. So that means nothing can separate us from him. It means it doesn't matter where we are, it doesn't matter what's going on, it doesn't matter whether we've spent the last six months in intensive prayer and study or whether we've just thought about it in the last five minutes. When we call on the name of Jesus, we have instant access to the presence of God because it's the deeds of the new covenant. And what is incredible in this moment is that this covenant is established between father and son. It's in the covenant of God. It doesn't involve humanity at all. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we say. It's not about whether we're having a good day or a bad day. It's not about whether we're having a good month spiritually or a bad month spiritually. It's not about whether we're walking every day with Jesus or whether we've been backslidden for the past however long. The minute we call upon him, we have instant 
access to the presence and the glory of God because it's the deeds of the new covenant. The father speaks to the son and said, I've got a job, I've got a task for you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go. I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And I'm going to make you to be a brand new covenant with the people. And the son says, okay, I'm going to go. I'll go, Father. But this is what I ask, that you glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. And that you protect those that believe in my name. And you give them instant access to where I am. So we see the deeds of the covenant set out. Two parties in equal footing agreeing. They agree to it. They promise to it. All we need is the external sign. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you in the same way after supper he took the cup and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood and that means that the minute he breathed his last breath on the cross and his blood was shed The deeds of the new covenant came into play for every man, woman, boy and girl upon the face of the earth. That every single person, male, female, Jew, Greek, every single person on the face of the earth, black, white, every color, every race, every culture, every person that puts their faith and trust in Jesus has access to the manifest presence and glory of God and can live every day of their lives under his protection. Because Jesus rose from the dead with the power of an indestructible life and he is the guarantor of a better covenant. The new covenant that we live and exist under right now. This Easter, we recognize what took place that first Easter. The deeds of the new covenant came into play upon humanity. And this ministry truly is a better ministry. It's a ministry that involves us beholding and experiencing and reflecting the manifest presence and glory of God, that we would be transformed into his likeness. It is a ministry that brings life, as Corinthians teaches us. Church, I want to encourage you. You might be here and you've been in a great place. You've been walking with Jesus up until this moment. You've been hearing his voice. You've been seeing his hand at work. Or maybe you're here and you've not quite had that journey. And you've been struggling, you've been difficult, you've been away from him, you've not been as close to him as you once were. Let me tell you this. It doesn't matter where you are. Tonight, every single one of us has instant access to the manifest presence and glory of God. It's not about our sin status. It's not about our holiness status. It's not about how great we are in devotional reading. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done. Tonight, let's step in to the deeds of the new covenant.